for such a time as this. They are some of the most pertinent words in the Bible. Because they always work. They always fit. It doesn't matter who you are, where you come from, what your life has been. God has put you exactly where you are for right now. And if you don't know that, I mean, that's your ignorance. It's going to stop you from using right now for the good. There's a good chance even you could be using right now for the evil, which includes your own self-destruction. But that's not what the story of Esther is about. It's not about the story of self-destruction. It's about the story of salvation. It's about the reality that the God who puts you where you are for such a time as this has put you there to rely on him to get you through it. Because so far as we walk in this veil of tears, this life of shadow and death and confusion, it is always not good. It is always a wicked time. This has been the case since our first fathers, Adam and Eve, collapsed this world in on itself. And it will be the case until the day when our risen Lord Jesus Christ returns to roll it all up like a scroll. Right now he reigns. He's king. He grabbed it all with the thorns and the spikes and the flowing of his blood. He brought all of it into himself so it could be his now and not that of the prince of this age, though the prince of this age still rules at Jesus' pleasure. That is, he still lets the devil do what he wants. Why? In order to make it so that you would rely on him for such a time as this, to bring you into such a time of this as this. Think about it in this very simple way. If Jesus had risen from the dead and then started everything that is the life of the world to come, right then, then there would have been no more children born. He's very clear about this, that in the life of the world to come, we will not be given in marriage. It's going to be perfect, but it's going to be different. If that's a challenge, I get it. It's a challenge for me to understand what that means. I'm not sure I like it even. I know when I get there, I will though. Because it'll be right. It'll be good. And again, so if he rolled up the earth like a scroll 2,000 years ago, where would you be? You wouldn't. You wouldn't be. And the fact is, he wants you to be. Not just here now, in such a time as this, but here then, on that last day, living forever like the angels, given to him in perfect, sincere, innocence, blessedness, and forever awesomeness. So again, the story of Esther for such a time as this is always pertinent. And how much more pertinent is it now in these days that you and I live specifically? Now, I believe firmly that a preacher in 1912 could have preached this text and told all the people there, this is about you needing to realize that the devil's your enemy, that he's turned this world against Christianity, and his goal is to destroy your faith. He's going to use everything, kings, powers, crowns, news media, uh, tax purposes, everything, the sword, whatever he could do, he's going to use it to destroy your faith. And that preacher would have been preaching the truth. But he also would have been able to find a Christian church on every corner filled with people who knew what the Bible said. And you can't find that now. You can't find that now. He also would have found seven Supreme Court justices that could have told you what a woman is. They could have told you when life began. 
And, well, six of them, I think, maybe can say that now. I don't know. But one's about to get on who can't. And don't think for a minute that's about politics. It's not. That's about the fact that we live in an age that is so confused, that is so upside down, that we should not be surprised when people start killing people. Did you know the murder rates went up significantly last year in every major city in the U.S.? It's already started. We should not be surprised when groups start isolating groups and trying to put them into positions of sadness or destruction simply because that's who they are. Whether it's because you're white and so you're bad for being white, if you haven't heard that yet, you will. Or whether it's because you're Russian and so you're bad for being Russian, and I know you've heard that now. It doesn't matter. What happens right now is that the devil has got demons running people's minds everywhere. And what he does when he does that is he turns it into chaos where everybody hates everybody. And it's all to destroy Christianity. Now, the line that I want you to cling to out of Esther is right next to that line about such a time as this. But it's, it's even better. It's even better. So this is on page 412 of your pew Bible. Unless you have a large print pew Bible, there are a few of those around. Uh, Then you have to find Esther on your own. It's right before, excuse me, yes, right before the book of Job, right after the book of Nehemiah. Esther chapter 4, verse 14. It's the same verse that has for such a time as this. But before Mordecai, this amazing guy, I'll tell his story in a moment. Before Mordecai says, for such a time as this, Esther, you were born. He first says this. He says, if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. So the story is, you know, Esther, you're here right now so you can exercise your body, your mind, your heart, your soul for good for the sake of the Christian church before Jesus came. That's what Judaism was. But if you won't, don't ever think it's actually going to get beat. Don't believe for a second that the religion of Jesus Christ is going to fail. It's going to rise. It's going to survive. There will come salvation from somewhere. You just won't be part of it. That's the message for us today. A message not of you won't be part of it, St. Paul or listener online. No. The message that you are part of it. That you are those who have been washed, you've been sanctified, you've been justified, you've been called for such a time as this to know that Christianity will not be scuttled with the winds of this age. Now, whatever destruction they're planning to call down upon themselves, whether it's as bad as Sodom and Gomorrah or as some other thing like the Dark Ages, I don't know. Whatever destruction gets called down upon us by the wickedness that we are building up for ourselves as a country, Christianity is not going to get destroyed by it. And we who cling to Christianity, therefore, can know that deliverance will arise for us. Does that mean every single one of us is going to live the next hundred years? No, of course, you know, that's not true. Precious in the sight of Jesus is the death of his saints. And indeed, sometimes he takes us away in the midst of our years because it is better by far to depart and be with Christ. And so if he sees that it's the time to free you from these shackles and to take you to himself, well, then so he will do. And I won't say the 
the A word is still Lent, but he has risen and all that good stuff. Okay? But don't for a minute think that just because some of us die, that Christianity will die. It will never die. It's already proven itself to outlast every other attempt to destroy it. Look what we're still doing. We're still eating the bread and wine. We're still trusting that Christ is in charge. Is this going to stop it? Do we really think this is the worst it's ever been? This is not the worst it's ever been. We have a strange animation of ideas attacking us. The mental cognitive programming which the TV and the internet and the smartphone is able to enact on you against your will to change your will without you knowing it is like nothing we've ever seen before. But at the same time, there's nothing new under the sun. It's the same story. Sodom and Gomorrah were just as bad, if not worse. So again, the issue here is not to be surprised that you as a Christian can be confident. You can know who your God is. You can know what his plan is. And you can know that you're in the middle of it right now because he puts you here to stand firm and to build your house on a rock. And to know that rock is Mount Zion, which can never be moved. And you, with your trust in Christ, are like that mountain. A free city, a true kingdom, one in which you belong and one that you can take great pride in. Yeah. For such a time as this. Now, I don't know how to show you all the neat little nuggets that are in Esther. There's, there's too much in here. And in the last service, I barely got us into time. Um, I want to pull it all out, but I also want to make sure you get the whole story. Yeah. So uh, let, let's start there with the whole story. And just go back to chapter 1, verse 1, if you would, and, and look at the name that's there. Because we do want to place this in history. This is not Scheherazade's 1001 Tales. Uh, uh, this is not Aladdin. This is not some, some made-up idea. It's not even the Bagada de Vida, which, again, is just a made-up tale. Uh, and this is a history. And we know this because this guy, in the days of Ahusuerus, the Ahusuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces, this guy really existed. Ahusuerus isn't his only name. His other name was Xerxes. Now, you know, there was a time... Uh, when we were coming out of the Dark Ages into the Enlightenment and the scholars, they, they thought they were really smart because they knew more about some things than the people a generation before them did. And so they decided to make a bunch of big claims and they'd say things like, we don't even know who this guy is. He never shows up in any of the record books. All those kinds of claims, you can still find them on the History Channel. It's amazing. It's amazing. You can still find them on, on media, but they've all been disproven. They're all not true. We keep digging in the sand. We keep finding stuff. I mean, they used to say Pontius Pilate didn't exist. I mean, 20 years ago, they found a box with his name carved on it. He existed. Yeah. They've all been shown to be, to be false. Xerxes was a Husserus. Who was Xerxes? Xerxes is the third of the great kings of Persia. He's not the third king of Persia, but he's the third of the great ones, the one that mattered, who was Persian. Persia was that nation that rose up and destroyed the kingdom of Babylon. Who was Babylon? the greatest kingdom there ever was. According to the vision of Daniel, which he has, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, rules as the golden head over a great body that is every other nation that will ever rise. And at the peak of it is him. And everything from there is downhill. That doesn't mean it gets smaller. It means it gets less pure. So when you get to the bottom, the feet made of iron and clay, that iron and clay, which was the Roman Empire, I mean, it was bigger, it was stronger, it was richer. 
But it wasn't Babylon. There were no hanging gardens in Rome. We don't even know what that means. We just know they had them. It was something beautiful to behold. Nebuchadnezzar, he's the one who destroys Jerusalem. Do you remember this? He takes away the Israelites to be captive. That's how all of these Jews get to Babylon for this to be happening. He does quite fine, but his great-grandson or his grandson is not doing so good. He decides to profane the name of Jesus by taking the implements out of the temple. They weren't in the temple anymore. They were in his storehouse. But he takes the implements that were used for sacrifice by the people according to the covenant of Sinai. And he has a party with them. And he gets drunk on them. And so a ghost hand shows up and basically says, you die tonight. No one knows what it means. Daniel comes in. He interprets it. You remember that story, right? You're going to die tonight. His kingdom falls. We know that the kingdom of Babylon fell in a single night as a guy named Darius the Mede came across a number of the canals and completely took the city peacefully. He took it intact. So he was able to make it part of his own kingdom. And so the story of this guy, Darius the Mede, ends up in the story of Daniel as well. You remember Daniel in the lion's den. That's Darius, who is the one who's the king at that time. Now, again, scholars have debated since the 1700s, who is this guy, Darius the Mede? We don't really know. He probably doesn't really exist. It turns out, when you do enough digging, it's just the first name of Cyrus, king of Persia. Okay, why does Cyrus, king of Persia, have many names? Because when you were like able to rise above all the masses back then, you start maybe as a sheik somehow in the in the the nobility of a group, and you marry into the king's house on a second level, but you show yourself to be so talented, you become a general in his kingdom, and then you eventually get him removed and get yourself put in charge, and you're able to rule over all of it from bottom. You've got like 15 or 30 names. Because every time you go up, you get a new name. Right? So it's not surprising. What's surprising, what's amazing, is that Daniel had enough insider information to name him Darius which very, very few other records ever do. Only, only just a few that we found recently. In any case, so Cyrus, king of Persia, this amazing bear-like country that takes over Babylon and rules all the Mesopotamian area, which will eventually fall to a guy who I know you've heard of, Alexander the Great, right? Who brings Greece down upon, upon Persia and, and knocks them out. He actually gets all the way down to Egypt. It's really something what Alexander does. Well, Alexander is able to do what he does because his father, Philip of Macedon, is able to unite the tribes of Greece. Now, they weren't tribes like living out in tents. Greece was made up of city-states. These were cities that had walls. And as walled cities, they were safe places to live. And the guy who reigned over it was a kind of a king. And there were a number of them that were quite powerful in Greece, and they didn't like each other. They would fight each other, and they would kill each other. And they did that a lot until eventually they couldn't anymore because there was this thing called Persia that was about to attack them under a guy named Xerxes. I mentioned him already, yes? Xerxes comes to attack Greece, all of Greece, because a small part of Greece under the second great king of Persia, this is where it will get confusing, his name is Darius, not Darius the Mede, Darius, the second great king of Persia, a small group of Greeks give him a little bloody nose in one battle up on the northwest provinces at some point. And so he appoints a man to stand by his table for the rest of his life and say, remember the Athenians. Remember the Greeks. 
so that he never forgets to go punish them. Well, he doesn't get to do it, but Xerxes, his son, third great king of Persia, decides to go and punish them and ends up at this great story. You'll have to look it up on your own. The Battle of Thermopylae, the Hot Gates, the 300. He's, he's withstood by a small army of Greeks while the rest of the Greeks are able to get away. But this sets into motion a number of things that result in the uniting of the city-states, which brings about Alexander, who then comes down and destroys Persia a bit later. Again, it's pretty cool that this is not just a story like Scheherazade's and Thousand and One Nights. This is actually right smack dab in the middle of reality. Okay? It is during Xerxes, this third great king of Persia, he's inherited it all. He's got all the power in the entire universe, so far as anybody is concerned. It's during his life that this story about Esther takes place. And it goes uh, something like this. Again, we're not going to read through each piece. But... He decides to put on a great show. And in this great show, he's going he's gonna to have his troops march. He's going to show off all of his cattle. And he's, it's just like a big fair. Think of like a county fair, only it's, it's the, the Empire Fair. And it lasts for like 180 days, half a year. At the very end of the Empire Fair, where everything's been shown off, he throws a great banquet, seven days long. Seven days of feasting, seven days of wine, cake, crumpets, I don't know. Whatever they thought was great. Snails, I don't know. They're feasting on everything from all over the empire. And at the very end of this feast, he wants to bring out his queen. Her name is Vashti. He wants her to come out and stand beside him so he can say, look at me and my glory. And only one thing goes wrong. She says, no, I'm going to stay in my room. It's kind of a strange thing if you think about it. I, mean, I don't know what their marriage life was like. Probably wasn't real great. Many ancient marriages and royalty were not real great. They didn't see each other very often. It was mainly about procreation. But at the same time, though, it's, it's a bit weird. I mean, doesn't everyone want to be a princess, right? Isn't, isn't that what all the stories are about? I want to be a princess. Yeah? And then here you are. You're the queen. 180-day festival with a seven-day feast. Come out. Take your glory. No. No, I don't want it. So this causes a really fascinating problem, which I will have us look at this text again here. We looked at it last service too. Uh, look, at, look at verses uh, uh, 17 and 18. Well, let's start at verse 13. Let's start at verse 13. The king, you see that there, verse 13? Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure toward all who were versed in law and judgment. Uh, the man next to him being, it gives some names there. We'll skip ahead to verse 13. Verse 15, what the king says, he says, according to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti? Because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs, right? So he basically says, what do we have in our law that says what's supposed to happen when the queen says no to the king? And there's a thing about the laws of the Medes and the Persians that's a little weird. Like, <laughs> like one of them at some point has this idea. I know. I'll make it so that when I make a law, I can never take it back. I'm not sure that's the best law. I really am not. But, but it was their law. And so he says, what have we already decided to do to Queen Vashti? And now here's, here's then uh, verse 16. Then uh, Memucan said in the presence of the kings and the officials, not only against the king has the Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. Verse 17, now, this is what I wanted to look at. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, 
King Ahusserus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media, who have heard of the queen's behavior, will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. Now, I don't have time right now to go into the, the ancient history of patriarchy and the not-so-ancient history of feminism and its despising hatred for men. If you haven't seen that yet, yeah, it's got to deal with it. The feminists now, they're not for women. They're against men. They hate men. I don't have time to go into all of that there. What, what I want you to see is how they realize pretty quickly, like if the queen gets to say, I don't care what you say, king, then all the women are going to say, I don't care what you say, man, and then all the marriages are going to suck. Period. This isn't about how the men should be like, woman, you do what you're told. That's not what it's supposed to be either. Okay? It's just about recognizing that if we decide to divide ourselves because we just think we can, then we're going to be divided, and that's not going to go well. Now, I'm not saying that the answer they come up with next is right, but I am going to say for such a time as this, we live right now to see just how bad it's gotten in our world. If you cannot connect the state of our marriages to the state of our country, then I can't help you. Because that is what it's about. That's what it's been about since the 60s. It's about, about destroying what it means to be made man and woman in Christ and how that is connected to the next generation existing as the reason we exist. It is, you don't get married for a great big happy day for yourself so you can be princess. You get married because you're going to have kids and they're the future. And it's up to you to make that future happen and be good. And we're on two generations into, yeah, not really. Look at it. Look at it. Now, the law they put in place, again, I'm not going to say it's the most wise law. In fact, the king's going to regret it. But the law that they put in place is, here's the new law. Queen Vashti can no longer talk to the king ever. If you say no to the king, you're gone. You're done. And in theory, this is going to stop all the women in all the empire from doing the same thing to their parents or to their family. Uh, I don't know. What I do know is that it's only a little while after this, the king is like, I miss my queen. I kind of miss my queen. And he gets a little mopey about it. He's kind of sad. He liked her. I, I, don't, I don't know why. I mean, they had a love-hate relationship. I don't, I, don't, I don't know. But his same counselors come to him and they say, well, we'll get you a new queen. Remember this, dude. You're like the king of everything, right? You have, you have power over everything. So here's what we'll do. We'll go through all the country and we'll find the most beautiful women of every race, every group, every family, every tribe. We'll find the most beautiful women and we'll just take them. We'll bring them in and they'll be yours. They'll be your concubines. You'll have this whole house just filled with beautiful women. And you can have a different one every night until you decide that one of them should be queen. Now, like, look, as a father, <laughs> that's horrible. This is disgusting. This is the worst thing ever, okay? I think it's a terrible idea. Um, as someone who's grown up in America, like, do you hear the Cinderella about to happen, though? Can you see the Cinderella? In this, that's also here, okay? It's both of those things. And then this is where, you know, ent enter Esther. And if you want to look with me then, um, it's going to be verses 5 through 7 of chapter 2. It says, there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, that's the city of Susa, is like a fortress, whose name was Mordecai, 
the son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjaminite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah. I said in the last service that that's J1. I think I'm wrong. I think that's J2. Uh, Jeconiah, uh, the grandson of Josiah, who is the one through whom eventually Zerubbabel will come and Jesus eventually comes through him. Uh, he's carried away in that. I think it's the second exile. Right? There's a number of them that take place. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, carried them away. Verse 7, he was bringing up Hadassah. That's her Hebrew name. Esther's not her Hebrew name. Hadassah is her Hebrew name. They call her Esther, though, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. Now, the book is called the Book of Esther, but if you, if you kind of take it start to finish, it's really the book of Mordecai. Mordecai is mentioned before Esther, and he's mentioned last. And his story is not unlike the story of Joseph. Do you remember that one? Where this guy who's been taken away from his homeland and given a really bad set of circumstances eventually is brought from the very dregs of the bottom where his life is at risk to be set second in charge of everything in the kingdom for the good of all the people. That's what's going to happen to Mordecai. Exact same thing. Again, for such a time as this, right? For such a time as this. But how does it happen? By means of this second main character, another protagonist, this woman, Esther, who, I mean, she's already an orphan. I mean, golly, what a whore. Her parents are dead. She's living with her uncle. They, they, they are not rich. They're exiles in a foreign land. They're, they're refugees. And along come the soldiers, and they take her in. Again, Cinderella, right? They take her into this great big harem. Which, again, as, as much as I would have to say as a Christian man that a harem is a terrible idea, it's a bad idea, here's the thing about it. All of these women, if they were starving, they're not starving now. If they were in danger night and day from rape from people around, they're not now. They're not now. So there is good in this. She's brought in. She's cleaned. She's given perfumes and pillows and everything she could possibly want. Her entire life is going to be taken care of. Now, again... I mean, who really wants to be a concubine that is one who's not a princess and put in a corner and kind of left there after the one night of use? Nobody, right? Nobody in their right mind. But it is, it is the chance. Maybe you get to be queen. And there's this other really cool bit. I won't have us look at it specifically. But one of the things these ladies are given the opportunity to do is to take anything they want with them on their one night to see the king. Anything they want, you know. Yeah, if they had a, an Xbox, I mean, I guess that probably would have been the way to win his heart these days, right? Uh, what did they take? Good food? Entertainment? I don't know. What's fascinating, we, we don't know what Esther took, but we know she didn't come up with it herself. We know that the ruler of the eunuchs liked Esther. He thought she was a good person. And as a eunuch, again, this isn't a sexual attraction. It kind of it can't be. Yeah? He simply sees her as one who is good. And so he gives her the best perfumes and a bunch of other stuff. But on top of that, he says, hey, when you go to the king, take this. We don't even know what it is. We just know she took it. And she took what he told her to take. And the night is a good night. And she becomes queen. She's made queen. The story could end right there if it was Cinderella, right? That would be the end of it. But it doesn't end there because uh, something else happens. All right. So let's see if we can look at chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Actually, back it up. 
chapter three, chapter two, verses twenty-two to twenty-three. Uh, let's see. Now, yeah, twenty-one, verse verse twenty-one, chapter two, verse twenty-one. So in those days, like she's queen now, right? In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, that beware leading men of the city would often come and sit. Big Fan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther. And Esther was told, Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows. And it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. Now, you know, my note here says not all conspiracy theories are theories. Sometimes they're actually conspiracies. That's worth knowing. This is a general point. But here it is. Mordecai exposes a conspiracy to kill the king. And because of Esther's placement for such a time as this, she's able to save the life of her husband. Now, what happens next is not much. Nothing happens next. Life just goes on, but that story is going to come back. It'll be important by the end of this. Okay, so chapter three is right there after this. After these things, King Ahusuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage, right? So now the king puts the guy in charge of the whole kingdom so he can spend his life relaxing a little bit more, right? He's his right-hand man. And everyone is supposed to bow down on their face whenever this guy goes by, and Mordecai won't do it. And the text really doesn't tell us why again. I think we can assume it's not Mordecai's pride. I think we can assume that. I think we can assume it has something to do with being a faithful Jew. Maybe Haman was walking around with a big idol in the air, and so Mordecai wouldn't bow down to the idol. I don't know. And it just says that when he's asked about it, he says, I'm a Jew. I can't do it. But the result of this is that Haman now hates the Jews. Now, talking about hatred for the Jews, destruction of the Jews, as Americans, it's very difficult to remove that from our own history. Not that we did this, but we stopped a nation that was doing this, or at least so the story goes, the Nazis and Hitler and all these things. What I don't want us to do is to actually think that has anything to do with this. This hatred of the Jews isn't the hatred of the Jews. It's the hatred of Christianity. It's the hatred of Christianity. Mordecai is practicing the old covenant faith, waiting for the Messiah to come and save him. And because he trusts in that faith, he will not do whatever is against it. And because of that, Haman wants to destroy not only the Jews, but all who would hold to these rules and laws that are pointing to the coming of Christ. And in this, can you see this? If Haman should succeed in killing all the Jews, which will be his plan, guess what he's destroyed? Jesus. Jesus will never be born because he's going to come from Jews who are living in this place at this time. So this is not about Hitler. This is about the hatred of Christianity. And as we talk about such a time as this, I already said it in this service, yeah, that what is 
the devil really about today? Is he really about destroying this or that country? No. He will. Countries will rise, countries will fall. But is that what it's about? No. It's about attempting to come out of the shackles into which God has put him, those shackles being the truth of Christianity. Christianity goes into all of the nations to set all of us free by the knowledge that sin, death, and the devil have been taken away in the cross of Jesus. And the devil is going out to deceive the nations, to to try to trick you into believing that that is not sufficient. And the way he wants to do it here is by the sword and by blood. And in times in history, indeed, in times in history, indeed, Christians have been persecuted by the sword and by blood. Will such a time as that come upon our shores? I don't know. I can't tell you. I can't say it doesn't look good. I don't think it looks good. I think it looks really bad. They don't don't know what a woman is. Again, like, and, and they're mad at you, and they say you're a racist and a bigot and hateful if you won't agree with them. There's no reasoning with that. How do you live beside somebody who's going to shout at you and scream at you and throw stuff in your face and eventually get violent with you? Huh? That is the, what am I advocating? What am I advocating? Prayer is what I'm advocating. That's what I'm advocating. All right? And before you think, I say fight back. So, again, here it is in this time. The same fight. An attempt to destroy the faith. Haman's going to do this in a very deceptive way. It's pretty clever if you think about it. He goes to the king. He says, you made me number two. You pay me billions of dollars every year. Your own treasuries. I can see, you know, they're doing fine, but you always like a little more silver, don't you? What if I give you 10,000 talents of silver? It's just so much money. A talent's like a year's wages, right? 10,000 talents of silver. If you'll let me do this one little thing. I'll pay all this money. Just let me do this one little thing. It's not even that big a deal. I just want you to pass a law. Here's the law. On one day in a couple of months, I want anybody who doesn't like this people, the Jews, but here are Christians, anybody who doesn't like Christians, I want you to be able to kill them. Anybody. Just because, I mean, they're weird. They do funny things. They won't agree with us. They're so selfish. So if we could just kill them, then everything will be better. And the king's like, eh? Sure, I don't know. There's a small group of people. I don't know much about them, and I like that money, so why not? He passes the law. He passes the law. That's what brings about the text we heard read in chapter 4 a few moments ago, right, over at the, at, the, at the lectern, where Mordecai sees that this piece of paper that says, there's a day coming in a couple months when anybody can kill you and there's no repercussions. You can't go to court. You can't sue. Nothing. No repercussions. They get to murder you and take your stuff. Anybody who's like you, huh? And he's looking at this thing, and he's wailing. He's like, well, I'm going to rip my clothes. I'm going to put on sackcloth. I'm going to go lie in ashes. And everybody else that was a Jew who found out about this, they did the same thing. Now, see right away, what are they doing? Are they just ripping their clothes and putting on sackcloth? It's what I said a moment ago. They're praying. If you're concerned about the future of our life as Christians in this age, what is our solution? Dear Jesus, help Dear Jesus, I get it. We probably deserve it. Can you spare us for your mercy's sake? And he goes and he does that publicly at that very place where he had refused to bow down to the pagan. Yeah? And as you heard read, Esther hears that he's out there doing this and she sends some of her people to say, hey, 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 life's not so bad. Huh? You got lemons, make lemonade. It'll be okay. And he says, here, look at this. And he sends this piece of paper back to her. Look at this. And then he says these words that are so important. Don't think you're going to escape. If right now, at this time in history, I'm talking right now, 
We as Christians do not realize how much we stand on the precipice of destruction and turn our hearts to pray to Jesus for him to bring back a true peace to us. Not a man-made peace, not a peace built on lies, not an abundance built on destruction, but just that he would give us sincerity and truth in our leaders then we will not we we cannot be surprised when it gets worse we cannot and in fact if we end up collapsing if we end up losing our own faith in the mist it will only be what we deserve that's what again mordecai says to her and what we want to hear now that we are not here because we are those who shrink back. We are not here because we are those who will let this life dominate us. We are here because we've been called out of darkness and into his marvelous light. We know who our God is. We know that Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. We know that whatever is going on in America, it cannot compare with that. And so we are going to cry out to the Lord of the harvest to send workers into his vineyard, laborers into his harvest field, to raise up good fruit, even in the midst of weeds, and to trust with certainty that he will turn even the worst circumstances that we see into things that are good for the church. Certainty again. For such a time as this, Mordecai says to Esther, you were brought into the kingdom. For such a time as this, my friends, my neighbors, my people, you are brought into the kingdom of Jesus. I mean, I heard a story this morning from some members. It's not about their family themselves, but about their immediate family. Something that's a horrible tragedy. My mind is overseas. My mind is in the CDC. My mind is all these other places. And they're dealing with an immediate horrible tragedy to someone who's in his 40s having nothing to do 50s having nothing to do with any of the news cycle nothing no illnesses no nothing horrible story for such a time as this still still always he has called you to this moment now to know that he's working it for your good and your goods your resurrection and the resurrection of your neighbor and the confidence to be able to share that with the least of these. Huh? All right, so as the story goes, Esther has got to go see the king, and the king's made one of these other rules, and it's kind of like, dude, king, why'd you make this rule? It's a bad rule. But one of his rules is, like, if you come into the... Actually, as I think about it, and I'm smiling at my kids now, you know how I don't like to be interrupted sometimes, right? Like, can I get you? Yeah, it's kind of like that, right? It's the same thing. Like, if the king's in his room, and you come in and you say, hey, king, like... That is an offense punishable by death. Like, you interrupted me. Die now. But I, as king, can always say, I pardon you. But I have to. If I don't pardon you, you get killed. And that's the law. And this is why Esther's a little nervous about going in, which you can understand. Yeah? But again, Mordecai convinces her that this is why you're here. You're not here to hide. You're here to stand. You're here to believe. You're here to act. And so she does. She goes into the king, and the king, of course, does love this woman. And so he pardons her. And he says, what do you need? I'll give you anything you need. She says, I'd like to have a feast. Right now, actually, it's kind of like a wine and cheese kind of thing. Come with the wine and cheese. Can Haman come along? And then we'll drink a little. I'll tell you more. So they do that. They go. They have the wine. And he gets feeling pretty good. Hey, oh, Esther, I know you don't just want to have lunch with me today. What do you really want? She says, well, I want to have a bigger banquet. I'm going to prepare it for you tomorrow, and I'd like Haman to come. Okay, sure thing. Haman goes out. Haman's excited. 
Haman is, oh my goodness, not only am I number two in the kingdom, but the queen thinks I'm cool stuff. She's having me at a special dinner with the king. Yeehaw. Hey, wife. He tells his wife, hey, wife, guess how good today was. What should I do next with all of this happiness I have? She says, well, aren't you planning to kill all the Jews? Oh, yeah, yeah, I'm planning to kill all the Jews. Are you planning to do it like to this guy Mordecai, right? Because you hate this guy? Oh, yeah, that too. Why don't you go build a special gallows just for him? That'll make your day. He's like, that will make my day. And he goes and starts to have the gallows constructed. Okay, it it gets better. Okay, so that night, the king has a dream. It's a nightmare. It it racks his brain. He wakes up. He's like, oh, I can't even sleep anymore. It's too bad. Well, one of my servants, will you open the annals of all the awesome stuff I've ever done? And and will you read to me from the the annals and the writings about all the cool stuff about me? And really, I mean, that's really what happens. And, And so that they start to read. And the part that they read is about how he was almost destroyed by a conspiracy. But some guy named Mordecai, who he doesn't even know, some guy named Mordecai saved him. He's like, wow, who's Mordecai? Did did we ever do anything for that guy? No, we never did anything for that guy. Next morning, hey, Haman, uh, good morning. Welcome to the office. Uh, What would you do if you owed somebody something and you weren't quite sure what to do? Haman's like, I know what I would do for me. I'd I'd put him in a big chariot, parade him around, have everybody call out how great he is. And he's like, all right, go do that for Mordecai. And Haman's like, the guy I'd build him the gallows for to kill, right? Right? Uh, But it happens, it all happens. And then Haman has to go to the dinner all upset, he didn't get his day. It wasn't what he wanted, but I guess I still get to go to, he goes to dinner. It's the end of the day again. He's done all this work for Mordecai. It's kind of frustrating. Uh, and he sits down, Esther feeds them. It's this beautiful thing. They got music over there. Who knows what else is going on for entertainment? Yeah. Um, and then the king finally says, now Esther, I know you don't just want to give me food. You're actually trying to ask for something. So what? I mean, half my kingdom, what? Tell me what it is. And she's like, well, basically, here's it. Here is it. Like, I, I don't want to die. And there's a guy who's trying to kill me. And he's made it so I can't escape. Not only me, but all my people. We're all going to die. And the king's like, what? Like, obviously, he doesn't remember the law. I don't, I don't know. He wasn't paying attention to rubber stamp kind of thing. Yeah, what, are, what are you talking about, Esther? Who? <laughs> that guy. The king gets up from the table in silence and walks away. That's how, that's how angry he is. And, you know, Haman's like, it was a bad day already, right? And now he's shaking in his boots. And the king comes back, and there's a little bit of discussion, but the long and short is um, the king asks his counselors, what shall I do to this guy? Now that I know what he's, he's tricked me into signing the death warrant for my wife. Uh, what shall I do to this guy? Well, you know... He started building this really big gallows yesterday. He was hanging from it. Yeah, I like that, he says. I like that. We'll do that. That's done. But they still have a problem. They still, so Haman's gone. Okay, yay. There's still a problem. There's this law that cannot be taken back, that on this certain day in a couple months, anybody can kill the Jews and there's no repercussions. Can't change it. What shall we do? Mordecai is brought in. Esther has a conversation, and she says this. She says, why don't you just pass another law that on that same day, the Jews can kill anybody that they want, and nobody can do anything about it. That way, if they're attacked, they just fight back, defend themselves, and, and we'll defend ourselves. It, it's kind of a little anticlimactic, but that is how it works out. Uh, not only do they defend themselves, but their enemies are stupid enough to try to attack them, 
And so as a result, all their problems, the kind of, you know, their, their political enemies in that area, they all get destroyed on this one day that was going to be their victory. Now, the point of this, the reason it's not an anticlimactic, what I want you to see is how things were as bad as they could possibly be, and God made it into them being as good as they could possibly be like that. That's what I want you to start praying for. Not as a theory, not as a philosophy, not as an idea. I mean it right now, St. Paul. This country, these families, this hill. I want you to pray that God will turn it upside down for us, that all these things that the news wants us to believe are so bad, and indeed they are, that he will use them to make the church rise again. To fill up not just our pews. I don't care about filling up our pews. I want to fill up the pews in all Christian churches everywhere. I want Christendom to rise again. I want people to know good from evil. I want neighbors to love their neighbors. I want families to raise their children to the second and third generation confessing Jesus Christ. For such a time as this, and I'm not kidding, and we have the God who does that. He does that. Now, uh, the end of the story, I I mentioned how it's a lot like Joseph for Mordecai. Uh, Out of this whole thing, Mordecai comes into the king's favor. By the time everything is done, they've, they've sent out all these messages and whatnot. Mordecai is appointed to be number two in the entire kingdom. He's the right hand of the king. He's taking care of everything for all people, not just the Jews, but for all people, because that's what a good king does. He looks out for his people. So Joseph's story in echo for Mordecai, but now also hear how this is about Jesus Christ. How Jesus, born in a manger, walking without a place to lay his head to rest like a fox that has a den, or doesn't, foxes have den, birds have nests, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head, he says, right? Uh, crucified before the world, buried in a tomb that didn't even belong to him. He has not only risen from the dead, but he has ascended to number two, the right hand of God the Father, where he rules over all things for the good of his people and all people. So I want you to see that. And remember, that's what this story is about. And that in this then, you are Esther. You are the bride of Christ. You are the church. You are the people he has bought from the darkness for his light. And in all certainty, you may approach the throne of his grace at all times, knowing he sets you here today because he wants you. He wants you. He created you. He has bought you. He will sanctify you. He will raise you. For such a time as this, I don't know how much more can be said. In the name of Jesus.